Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we closed Luke chapter 18, we saw Jesus giving sight to the blind man. The other Gospels tell us that his name was Bartimaeus. And it tells us here that Jesus interacts with a completely different kind of person also there in Jericho, uh, the man Zacchaeus. Verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, Jericho really was a wealthy town. Because of a few different things, they were close to Jerusalem, which is also a town that had some means within it, but because of its climate during the winter, it was very nice, a lot of the wealthy people from Jerusalem would depart and go down the road to Jericho in order to enjoy the winter there. Not only that, but also because of its position geographically, Jericho was really a desert outpost. If you were coming into Israel, specifically going to Jerusalem from the east, you would pass through Jericho. And so it was a place where many taxes would be collected. So to find a tax collector there, who Luke describes as being rich, you would understand that this is a very wealthy man, especially when we learn here in verse 2, that not only was he a tax collector in a prominent city or town, but he was a chief tax collector. It seems that Zacchaeus is the overseeing tax collector of Jericho, which would have made him both incredibly rich, uh, but also incredibly unrighteous because of the unscrupulous things that he would have to do in order to collect taxes in that town. Now, we know that Jesus is going to reach into this man's life that Jesus is going to save him. And this is helpful to us because we saw in chapter 18 when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and would not sell his possessions, give them away, and follow Jesus. We heard Jesus say that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to gain salvation. And so we are learning here that it's difficult but not impossible. Jesus is able to do it because with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. As Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, God is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now it says in verse 3 that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, of course, the question is, why did Zacchaeus so desperately want to see Jesus? Perhaps he had heard the recent parable about a tax collector and the interaction with the rich young ruler. Perhaps he was getting a glimmer of hope from Jesus and and the words that he'd heard about Jesus. Perhaps his 
unrighteous soul had vexed him to the point that he was so conscious of his guilt that he said to himself, here is a man who is holding out some potential hope to men like me. And perhaps that was the reason. Maybe he was miserable because of his sin and this hope had overcome his heart. Perhaps he'd heard or known about Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples who had been a tax collector in his previous life. For whatever reason, Zacchaeus wanted to see Christ. Now, Luke gives us the detail that Zacchaeus was small in stature. Now, uh, for a man like Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector in Jericho, to sort of elbow his way through the crowd to try to get to the front of the line to be able to see Jesus due to his short stature, he would have been taking his own physical health into his hands. He could have been punched in that crowd elbowed in that crowd or worse in that crowd, it could have been potentially dangerous for him to interact with the crowd in that kind of way. So it seems that it made more sense for him to run ahead and climb up into a tree to see Jesus. Now, of course, one of the beautiful things that we're seeing here in watching a grown man climb a tree in order to get a glimpse of Jesus, some of us might say to ourselves, that's so much like a child. That's what a child does to be able to get a good sight uh, of something or someone. Well, remember what we saw Jesus say last chapter, Luke 18, verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Zacchaeus, with humility, like a child, climbs up into that tree in order to see Christ. And when Jesus, verse 5, came to the place He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So, verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Notice that Jesus, of course, here had an appointment with Zacchaeus. What did he mean when he said, Zacchaeus, I must stay in your house today? Perhaps he was giving Zacchaeus insight into the Father's will. Jesus always did the things which pleased the Father, and there are plenty of indications throughout his life that Jesus received directives continually and daily from his Father. And so perhaps he is letting Zacchaeus in on the Father's heart and will for Jesus' life. I must, Zacchaeus, stay at your house today. Now, this is beautiful because as much as Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, Jesus was all the more seeking Zacchaeus. He did, after all, empty himself and take the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men in order to come for us and also to come specifically to this man, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus responded with great joy. He received Jesus joyfully, but everyone else around had the opposite reaction. They grumbled, and of course they did. They were kept out of the room. They were kept out of that meal scene. We don't really get a lot of the details of what happened during that meal. The massive crowd was rejected while Zacchaeus was accepted. And Zacchaeus, verse 8, stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it 
fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Something happened to Zacchaeus in the house during that meal. Something happened that led to a radical conversion. Now, what we're seeing here is Jesus says that salvation has come to this house. He is not saying because this man is going to give, he has now earned salvation. No, knowing what we know of the New Testament, because this man had received salvation, his life has now changed and he begins to respond to the salvation that has been given to him. And his response, of course, is the exact opposite response of the rich young ruler who we saw in chapter 18, who walked away from Jesus. No, Zacchaeus's response is to sell all that he has and restore any wrongdoing that he has committed and to restore it for full. This, of course, continues to give us the beautiful hope that Jesus Christ can and does change a life instantaneously. I'm all about the process of growing in Jesus and going through the sanctification process, continually applying the great and beautiful truths of the gospel to our lives day by day, that we are being transformed to become more like Jesus from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. However, it is important to note that there are instantaneous transformations that Christ is able to perform in a person's life. And Zacchaeus experienced this in a beautiful way and in so doing is entering into true joy and happiness. Now he is truly wealthy. Jesus refers to him publicly as a son of Abraham. Now, this is interesting because in that culture, Zacchaeus was considered a traitor to the Roman government. But Jesus says, no, this is a son of Abraham. He's part of the covenant community. And Jesus then reiterates his mission. I've come to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So as they come near Jerusalem, they needed a perspective shift and a new philosophy on life to go with that uh, paradigm shift. And Jesus is going to give it uh, to his disciples in the form of a parable. Now, the perspective that really needed to change or shift for them was to be able to delineate and differentiate between the first and the second coming of the Messiah. They had fixated upon prophecies concerning the everlasting rule and reign of the future Messiah. Prophecies like Isaiah 9 verse 7, sort of a Christmas time prophecy to us, but for them to hear of the increase of his government and that of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So they were waiting for the everlasting, never-ending, eternal 
reign of the Messiah who would bring the throne of David back into prominence. Now, the interesting thing in looking at a passage like the passage to come that we're about to read here in a moment is that for us, as we look upon it, we don't have the same confusion that they had. Uh, We realize that there was a first coming and will be a future second coming of Christ. We realize that the first coming was a coming of suffering and agony and rejection But it was required because we needed the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in order to save us and give us introduction into the kingdom of God. So our perspective is not what their perspective was. We know that he will return someday. However, I think in approaching this parable, we also, like them, are in need of a philosophy of life and oftentimes Our philosophy needs a little shifting and tweaking. So I hope that we can look at it with eyes like that, that we might have the vision that Christ has for our lives. He said to them, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, the interesting thing here is that when Jesus begins to tell this story about a nobleman going into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, it's interesting because it does have a little bit of historical context that they would have been aware of. The historian Josephus tells how Herod's will had divided his territories after his death among his family and how before its bequests became valid, they had to go to be confirmed by the Roman emperor. Archelaus, Herod's son, went to Rome for confirmation and wanted to receive the inheritance that his father had left. And going to Rome to receive that inheritance There was actually an embassy of protesting Jews who followed him, who hated him, and uh, eventually he did receive it, but there's a little bit of context for this. They had experienced this kind of thing in their recent history, and so that's probably a little bit of what it means when it talks about a nobleman going into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, in the parable, he called 10 of his servants and committed to them 10 minas, a mina each, an amount of money in order to watch over it and to engage in business until he comes. Now, the interesting thing here to us is that Matthew recorded a similar parable from Jesus in Matthew 25. We call it the parable of the talents. Here we have the parable of the minas. In the parable of the talents, you have three different servants receiving three different amounts of money, uh, but receiving the same reward for their faithfulness. 
The focus there seems to be on being faithful with whatever gifts and abilities and situations God has given to you. That some might have five talents, some might have two talents, some might have one talent. We all have something and whatever we've been blessed with, whatever our background, our history, uh, whatever our education level, we must be faithful with our situation and bear fruit unto God. But in Luke's parable, all the servants receive the same amounts. So in one sense, you might say, yeah, it's true. We don't all have the same giftings. We don't all have the same backgrounds. We don't have all, all have the same histories. But every believer has the same gospel. Perhaps that's the concept that is being broadcast here. Are we going to be faithful with the gospel that has been entrusted into our care? Now, when the nobleman returned in verse 15, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities." Now, the concept of a servant being called to his master to give an account helps us with a couple of philosophies on life. First of all, well, Jesus is gone and has ascended now to the right hand of the Father, and before he returns, it is right for us to view ourselves as his servants occupying until he returns. Do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? Secondly, when the nobleman calls his servants to himself, it is appropriate for us as believers to consider the concept that we will someday be called to give an account of our lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not for our salvation. This is not for our justification. This is not a question of whether or not we get to spend an eternity with God. But there there are eternal riches and rewards. We want to run the race well. We will give an account for the way that we spent our lives and our time. Notice that this servant was found faithful in a very little and very faithfully turned one mina into ten. That's an incredible amount of fruit and great investment. But we are to be found faithful in very little as well. And the concept, of course, here is that in this life, everything is little. We're to work hard in the little things of this life that the Lord might open up beautiful opportunities for us eternally. And we're also to work hard in the little things of this life so that God might open up greater opportunities even for us here on earth. The second servant came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now, you have here the concept of cities being given out and distributed. I don't know that we can make too much of that statement from Jesus. However, we do recall the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28, when he said to them in the new, or excuse me, Matthew 19, verse 28, when he said to them in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Then another, a third, came to the master, typified by Jesus, of course, in the parable, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? So here you have this third man who buries the thing that was committed into his care, puts it in a handkerchief, and presents it back to the master. It's interesting because I think that the application is we must use what God has given to us. Yes, we must use our gifts, we must use our talents, we must use our abilities and opportunities, but we must use the gospel. We cannot bury the message of the gospel. We might say of God that he is sovereign, that he does not need our help, that he does not need us to preach and proclaim the gospel message or to live it out in this community. We might say that he will do as he pleases, that he has chosen who he wants. We might say things like that, but God seems to look at us and say, what I please to do is to use you. Yes, I am sovereign, but I've chosen to use the lives of my people to broadcast my glorious message. The master said to those who stood by in Jesus' parable, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So faithfulness leads to more responsibility in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus ends the parable in an ominous tone. But as for these enemies of mine, verse 27, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, verse 28, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. So Jesus here now is getting very close to the cross. He's approaching Jerusalem and preparing now for the triumphal entry, which would happen the Sunday before his resurrection. So he's within the week that he is going to actually die upon the cross. He sends a couple of his disciples. We know from the other gospels, this is uh, Peter and John. And he tells them to uh, find a colt that's tied and that the masters will release the colt. As they were untying the colt, verse 33, its owners said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Zechariah 9, verse 9, had prophesied that the king would come, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus here is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, 
already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, as they begin to sing in this kind of way, they are actually singing Old Testament psalms that are prophetic concerning the coming of the Messiah. And so they're crying out to him with these messianic psalms, in one sense, not really knowing what it is that they were proclaiming. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, verse 39, said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees come, hey, teacher, this isn't right. They're singing messianic psalms to you. They're making proclamations about you that just cannot be true. That's not who you are. Of course, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus gives them a beautiful reply. If they were silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. Now, when he drew near and saw the city, verse 41, he wept over it. The compassion of Jesus is overwhelmingly seen in this moment. The reason for his weeping is very clear in the words that follow, saying, verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, here Jesus weeps over the fact that Israel, particularly Jerusalem, had rejected Jesus. They would be the ones who would be involved in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, Jesus' crucifixion wasn't going to be an entirely Jewish event. No, God would orchestrate the event so that Jew and Gentile alike would be guilty in the crucifying of the Christ. But here, Jesus looks upon the city corporately, and he begins to weep. They just couldn't see his identity. They just didn't realize who he was. And for that, he weeps. These are days, these are things that make for your peace, Jesus said. But they just could not receive it. He weeps additionally because... In their future, very near future, he prophesies of their coming destruction. And this, of course, would be fulfilled in the days when the Roman government, uh, through the general Titus, would come and destroy Jerusalem, culminating in their final destruction in 70 AD. And so Jesus weeps the coming destruction coming upon them. But it's not hard for us to imagine the Lord having the same attitude today, looking upon people groups saying, these are the days, these are the things that make for your peace, but you just cannot see, and a day of destruction is coming. And he entered, verse 45, the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
In Mark's gospel, the timeline is abundantly clear. Jesus had gone in on the day of the triumphal entry to the temple and looked around and saw all things. Jesus then departed, came back the next day, and began to drive out those who bought and sold. On that day, according to Mark's gospel, when Jesus returned to the temple, he saw a fig tree and a thinking there would be fruit upon it because it looked leafy and like it was in full bloom, went to receive some of the fruit for he was hungry. When he found no fruit, he rebuked the fig tree and said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And it was dried up from the roots. Then he went into the temple and said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It appears that when Jesus came in at the triumphal entry, he was looking for fruit from the nation of Israel. And the fruit that he was looking for, he did not find. But the fruit that he was looking for was simply dependence upon God, a life of prayer. And would to God that you and I would be people of prayer, that we would be involved with churches of prayer, crying out to God, desperately trusting him and leaning upon him. Now, in that moment, it says in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And so now we have a description of the way that Jesus spent the days leading up to his crucifixion, going to the temple, teaching the people the religious leaders upset with him, but the people hanging on his words. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.